Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Skiff Podcast, Skiff's weekly conversations on the trend line shaping global travel. This podcast is sponsored by MasterCard, one of the world's leading technology companies. MasterCard and Skift have recently announced future cities, an exploration of how major destinations are preparing for the new age of urban mobility. From connected infrastructure to smart technologies, this upcoming series examines how global cities are creating seamless and personalized experiences for visitors and residents. Learn more about the project at futurecities.skift.com and join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag SkiftFutureCities. I'm Samantha Shankman, and this week I am joined by Skift News Editor Dennis Schall. World-renowned museums will always have a spot at the top of tourists' bucket lists. However, a growing obsession with local and unique experiences makes a traditional art tour seem more like a homework assignment than a treasured travel activity. A small but growing group of entrepreneurs is responding to travelers' changing expectations by building high-touch, low-tech experiences that share a different story about traditional art or provide access to art that the general public wouldn't otherwise know how to find. What's driving this demand for more unique, in fact, renegade experiences? How are museums and art galleries responding to these changes? And will these creative untours replace the traditional tour model altogether? To answer these questions and more, we're speaking with Nick Gray, the founder of Museum Hack, which leads fast-paced tours through New York City museums, and David Berenger, the founder of 2%, which leads audio tours through New York's ever-changing art galleries. So welcome, Nick and David. We are so happy to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm happy to be here. So you each have launched really creative tour concepts in the past couple of years. Would you mind explaining the concepts to our listeners who haven't heard of these before? Sure. My name is Nick Gray. The name of my company is Museum Hack, and we do renegade museum tours. We say, this ain't your grandma's museum tour, unless your grandma is like awesome and runs a lot and she's hilarious. (laughs) It's funny because we have that huge tagline on our website. It's like, this ain't your grandma's museum tour. And we've gotten like two or three messages from people who are like, my grandma is awesome. (laughs) And she leads these museum tours and she cusses like a sailor and she brings a hip flask. And I'm like, damn, your grandma sounds awesome. I want to go on her tour. Bring her on a tour. Bring her on a tour, right? Yeah, so so we do really fun, high-energy museum tours that have been popular with this millennial segment. And now museums and companies are hiring us to help re-engage this type of audience with our storytelling technique. My name is David Berenger. My company uh, is called The 2%, where we believe 98% of art is boring. Uh, I do two things. One, I, I spend my life seeing over 200 gallery exhibitions a month to f- identify the most exciting, unique, insane art on the planet, lasers you can move around the room, sprinkler systems that are rigged to fall from the ceiling to make a a drum beat of raindrops, just crazy next level stuff. Uh, And then uh, how do you tour that? And so I I came up with a concept called Audio Hop. And Audio Hop is a, a hybrid between an audio tour and a live tour. I wear a microphone under my clothes, you can't even see it, with a radio transmitter that can communicate with anyone in the gallery. 
like a one-way walkie-talkie, but allows people to spread out wherever they want in the gallery. You can even be next door or on the sidewalk and not miss anything. And then I can import uh, pre-recorded audio, whether that's the voice of the artist themselves talking about their work or philosophy, or sometimes my own voice, and so that the tour can be entirely silent. Awesome. Uh, I want to start with Museum Hack because I'm curious to learn about how the organizations first responded to the idea of this kind of tour and how that's changed over time. Were they open and receptive to it when you first proposed it? I, they definitely were not open to it at first. <laughs> when we first went to the museum, this happens a lot of times. I think they're a little bit scared of us and they don't exactly know what we're going to do inside of the space. And maybe some people who work there feel a little threatened that why are we coming in there? Does it mean that they're doing a bad job or something like that? And once they see that we're there to supplement the tours that they're already given and that we bring in a whole new type of audience, then the relationship completely changes and they welcome us. And we also drive crazy amounts of money to their spaces. And what about you, David? You are uh, leading tours through all these really kind of small, unique art galleries that a lot of the participants might not know about otherwise. What have been galleries' reactions as you've been coming through the coming through the galleries now that you've been doing this for how many months now? About a year now. I'm finishing the first year. Uh, honestly, due to the nature of the experience, most don't even know what's happening. That makes sense. Uh, one of my kind of games I play is if I can create a completely submersive, exciting, fun experience for a guest, but have no one else in the gallery even know what's happening completely under the cover. And so the times that the galleries have actually noticed, they'll come to me and say, uh, you come in here every two days with a group of people and you're completely silent for about seven minutes and then you leave. Like, what is happening? Or I had the, uh, this gallery owner named Mike and he came up to me and he said, because we're friends, and he said, hi, welcome. And I said, everyone, this is Mike. And then seven people in the gallery spread out, all turned and waved. And he was like, what the hell just happened? Because <laughs> it's a completely secret experience. But from the, uh, from the people who know what's happening, they're thrilled, from day one, thrilled. Because I think the problem of a gallery is they want an audience. They're there, even if you're not buying anything, you're helping the, build the fame of the artist, which uh, one, they're proud of, and two, it drives their business model. But they don't want to wreck or interrupt the kind of sacredness of that space, the quiet place of contemplation. And so with the way most galleries do it is they have an opening, a big, huge party where no one sees the art, but it's social. And then they hope that that makes you come back by yourself. And what I've done is solved kind of, at least for me, that problem of bringing people in silence, contemplation. So everyone's kind of excited to be a part of it. The ones that know, anyway. Have your tours been banned in any uh, particular venues? No. No. I've been met with nothing but kind of excitement and welcome. Great. David, are, are you a one-man show in that, in that respect? Do you, do, uh, do you have other people uh, leading the tours? At this point, I'm a one-man show. Right. Uh, so so how, do we, how do you scale that business up? Or, or is that not your goal? Honestly, right now, I'm just having a hell of a lot of fun. But uh, <laughs> scaling is something I've been thinking about right now. We're in year one, and I've developed kind of a following, and how do you how do you change that? And so I've, I've started going almost reverse into full audio tours experiences, but how do you keep the, the liveness of it all 
Uh, And so we started doing totally secret, illegal, undercover tours of institutions. We did Christie's the other day. And and for that, I create a um, a full audio experience, a 30-minute audio guide for you, but it's only active for about an hour. So you have to listen to it at a certain time of the day. I meet you on the sidewalk. I release the group 60 seconds apart. So you're all in the building at the same time, but never look like you're on a tour. And then we all grab drinks afterwards. So there's ways I'm experimenting with hybrid audio live experiences. Scaling is interesting. Can I talk about this? Because I feel strongly about that. Because I think a lot of companies who try to scale these travel experiences, they end up with a really bad product. And so they create this software or they create kind of an app that is infinitely scalable and it appeals to absolutely nobody. And so what David has created, I've been on one of his tours, I've been on several, they're awesome experiences. And you're asking the right question, how do you scale this from a business perspective? But from an experience perspective, I think we're both concerned with that experience first and foremost. And so we may not be the most successful business people in the travel space, but I think that we have the most engaging live experience um, for better or for worse, maybe. So you see the, the, the two as contradictory as far as experiences versus a huge successful business. You can't do both. I'm not sure about that. There's Certain companies look at what Disney's doing, for example, how they scale the live experience on a massive theme park. Look at what Detour is doing out in San Francisco with these audio tour experiences that remove the human element. Um, I think there's definitely opportunities for those, but I'm very focused on that live experience because I believe that consumers today are just digitally saturated and they will pay for and go out for that live experience. And so Skift actually did uh, one of the museum hack tours and we had an incredible guide, but it takes a particular kind of person to lead a museum hack tour. And most people aren't growing up to say, you know, I want to run this type of tour through a museum. It didn't even exist. Mm. How do you find that talent? That's a great question. How do we find these amazing tour guides who maybe never thought of themselves as a tour guide. Whenever we post for a job ad, the title of our job ad is like, Renegade Tour Guides Wanted. And that catches people eye. They're like, Renegade and Tour Guide. They almost kind of cancel each other out and it perks people's ear up. We do crazy casting calls. And notice that I use the phrase casting call instead of like a job interview. So we don't have job interviews, we have job auditions and we have to see them in the museum. We cast a crazy wide net of science teachers, musicians, people with PhDs in physics, renegade museum, like folks who used to work at the museum and now will share all the dirty gossip. Um, It's hard to do, but it's very selective. And as you go, I think you're expanding into other cities now. Is that the same process that you'll just do in each location or is it kind of changed based on the museum or which city you're in? Hmm. We've got a great team that is helping us, my colleagues Mark and Ethan, that are looking at hiring and especially new city growth. And we're just being careful, right? This is a high-touch, low-tech business. 
And so each city that we go into, we're taking a unique approach to it. Um, let's talk about the people who are coming on these tours for a minute. I mean, most people today think that they know what a tour is and, and that it's pretty boring. So how do you create something that's fun and revolutionary when the consumer doesn't even know that they want it yet? And then how do you kind of, what's the most effective means for then reaching that participant? Well, I'll say that uh, it's similar about Nick and I, not only our philosophy of, of connecting people, but neither of our businesses include the word tour. Because uh, I think it sets up an expectation for someone, a, a negative expectation of an experience. And we're doing something kind of so non-boring. Uh, I found for me, uh, I was giving private tours for many years before I, I started doing these audio things. And uh, private tours appeal to tourists, which is awesome, who want a little more hand-holding. A tour that never feels like a tour appeals 100% to a New Yorker. Because I think we love the city, that's why we're here, we want to experience it, but we never ever want to look like a tourist. And so I think me and certainly to Nick to some degree create experiences that appeal not just to tourists, but especially to New Yorkers who want to live in their own city, for sure. I liked what you said about New Yorkers not wanting to appear as a tourist. Whenever I go to a new city, I am that tourist, right? I got my head in a map, I'm doing all the sights. What exactly was the question? The question was, how do we create the experience and how do we market it? Yeah, to somebody who doesn't even know that they want something like this yet. Word of mouth is key. And you all know this, people who are listening as well, that if you create an amazing product, people are going to tell their friends about it. And there's this idea, right, that we exist in this consumer marketing segment where you have to focus all on the product and as much energy as you can to create something that's so fantastic that they can't but help kind of tell their friends. And where we exist in that boutique segment, I think that's where these types of businesses thrive on word of mouth marketing. I'm wondering why these creative untours are happening now. You know, you know, you talk, Nick, you talk about the fact that they're um, low tech, high touch. Your, your job ads talk about uh, renegade tour guys. Seems sort of 60-ish to me. <laughs> yeah. So why now? It's funny because when I talked about scaling and scalability not being very important and not being something that we focus on, on the other hand, it has allowed us certain sales tools have allowed us to scale these tours. And so the advent of credit card processing that's available to me to sell these tours very easily. The advent of online booking services such as Zerve, who we use based here in New York City to sell our tickets to customers. Online things such as Yelp and TripAdvisor where people can share those reviews. I think now's the easiest time that there ever has been to start a small business and that certainly helps. And David, you're sort of um, high tech and high touch, right? Yeah. Uh, just to kind of echo what Nick's saying, I think you, you can now. It's, it's 10 years ago, I couldn't have done this. I mean, I made audio tours 10 years ago just for my friends and that, that's it. They listen, that's great. But now someone can Instagram and tweet. And so it's still word of mouth, but that your word of mouth is viral to overuse the term. But you can, and I agree with Nick on credit card processing. Uh, the ability to swipe a credit card on the sidewalk and uh, I've been in a lot in blogs and on the news, but it, it is 
99.9% word of mouth. And, and again, social media is just a way to make that happen in a scalable fashion. What about from the local or the traveler's perspective? What do you think is changing kind of in their mentality or their psyche that they're searching out these more creative experiences or that they this is what they're being drawn to rather than a traditional tour? Do you think that there's maybe um, something that's happening kind of more generally or broadly that's impacting the demand that you now are seeing? Hmm. I'm going to go with with tech and Instagram again. Mm-hmm. There's 16 bazillion photos of the Statue of Liberty. And if you can Instagram yourself or something that all your friends go, what? You know, a unique experience. I think more than ever, not only physical experiences, but unique experiences have become very important in the, in the iPhone smartphone age. I'm seeing an interesting trend that I don't think it applies to my business or David's business, but it is the advent of the traveler, and it is a unique segment, but it's a traveler who does a lot less pre-planning. This is a traveler that is very scary to me who runs regularly scheduled tours and has to deal with staffing, but, but it's a traveler that we're seeing a little more of who sort of shows up in the city and then uses their smartphone and, and they use applications to find social recommendations once they're there. So maybe they have an idea of certain events that they want to do and they have a general city idea, but they may not be planning which restaurant and which sometimes even which hotel to stay. There's things like Hotel Tonight and things where they're just showing it up and living sort of in that moment. It's that idea that these days people are paying for experiences and not things. And that instantaneous travel, I don't know, it's a niche segment, but I'm definitely seeing it. And I think it's worthy of keeping an eye on. Is there a future for the traditional museum tour or the traditional city tour now that there's all these other options? Nick said something earlier about being accepted by the existing guides in a museum once they understand kind of what he's doing. Uh, I don't have that same competition, but I don't think we're taking guests from other experiences. You know what I'm saying? I think we're adding, we're pulling in people who would otherwise not mm. go on that experience. So I think traditional tours will always exist and always have a place. It's just we're expanding that audience. What's neat that both David and I are doing and is happening in these boutique businesses is that they truly serve to supplement the existing offerings. Let's look at both an art gallery experience and an experience at a major museum. Both of them can be free to the visitor. Right, A lot of museums have free entry, the galleries are all free, and you can go in on a self-guided visit and do a free docent-led museum tour. But there is a sector of the population who we've both identified that is willing to pay for this premium live experience. That's the person who says, the standard offering that you give is not good enough for me because I want something intense and high energy. And I think... Frankly, if the museums or the galleries tried to do this themselves, it might be a little bit weird, <laughs> right? Right? Because we serve as that antithesis voice, right? We're that balancing act. And it really is a niche market. A museum like the Metropolitan Museum of Art, 7 million visitors per year. And maybe we serve 10,000, right? It truly is a very niche sector. 
I think someone said to me earlier, because uh, I did a secret tour of the MoMA, which you're not supposed to do. Uh, <laughs> and someone said, like, what is your dream come true to have the MoMA hire you? Well, financially, yes. But I think what's my advantage is I'm not the MoMA. And so you're this automatically, not more educated, but this third party voice who people almost trust more because you don't work for that institution. Oh, big time. That's a yeah. huge thing. And the trust we see is a, for some reason, it's this, I don't know, is it anti-establishment? Like, what is that voice? Because it is like amongst certain generations. You don't trust the cigarette company who did the test on cancer. Do you know right. what I mean? To right. bring it re really morbidly. <laughs> but Comparing yeah. museums and art galleries to cigarette <laughs> yeah, companies? Let's, let's not do that. <laughs> but it's the... No, but there is, for some reason, there is a lack of trust in these massive institutions because they don't seem personable. And so we're willing to come into them and tell you the real deal and talk to you like a human and address you where you want to be met. I think that is interesting. It's that they're almost too big to be believable. Yeah, even when they are saying the truth and right. it's great. Yeah, you just don't, there's a lack of trust. And yeah. What have you two learned from the people who participate in your tours? How have your tours evolved? How are they different today than when you first started, perhaps based on what you might've picked up from some of your uh, participants? Trusting in your guests' intelligence is something I've learned. Don't, you don't need to baby walk them through something. If there's a, a part of an exhibition which relies on it being discovered, don't walk into the gallery and say, in the back, there's a secret. Uh, to, to let them exercise their own intelligence, to give them space for conversation. Uh, even though I'm, I'm blaring audio at people, it, because it is live, someone can come up and ask me a question, uh, which I can answer for the whole group. And, and the questions are usually the most exciting thing about the tour. And so it's a reminder for me to just shut up sometimes. <laughs> and let people think and because people are smarter than they think they are. I agree with that. We're learning new things all the time. The only thing I can add to the conversation is that we did like clockwork after every tour for the first year satisfaction surveys that focused on what did you like about the tour? What did you not like about the tour? No, really, what did you not like about the tour? <laughs> And where could we improve? And so we would get such interesting feedback where, where we would try really cool things and people really would have violently negative reactions to it. And I love to hear that from our customers and them being able to share that is so important to us. Do you, do you take a, a negative response as a compliment? Oh, that's a great question. Hmm. I think the one way to fail is to make a tour that tries to appeal to everybody, yeah, yeah. right? And so it's important to balance those negative compliments with figuring out whether they're in your target market, managing that type of experience. We got a negative complaint from somebody recently that said, we didn't feel the tour was appropriate because we talked about butts and balls the whole time. And... I said, oh, wow, that's, that's really interesting feedback. And then we got another one. I was like, this tour was hilarious. They talked about butts and balls the whole time. I was like, huh. I'm like really conflicted as a business owner. What to do here? What do you do with that? The, I loved on your tour, by the way, when we put on the headphones for the first time and you played some music and everybody on the experience looks around and realizes that like we're a part of a secret club yeah. on the street right now. That was a lot of fun. 
I think um, that the group is a, a really big part of each of these experiences, not only who's leading you through the experience, but the other people that you're meeting while you're going through it. Yeah. How do you kind of make sure that makeup is going to also contribute to the overall experience that if you're a local, you're not going to be the only New Yorker in a group of tourists from somewhere far away that you don't at all relate with? Or if you're a tourist, how do you make sure that they feel comfortable in a big group of New Yorkers? We've tried to do it by aggressively marketing what the tour is about. Now, I'll give an example of that. We found that the tour became so popular with New York City folks that they would tell their friends, and when their friends would come to the city, they would want to bring their kids. And so it was hard for us to turn away that money of bringing these little kids on the tour, right? These are additional bodies, and they're going to sell out a tour, right? A family of six versus just a couple. But we actually got some negative feedback from people. And, and the other visitors didn't like that we had to not use swear words and we had to tone it down. And so now what used to be saying, you know, this tour is not intended for children. Now we very explicitly say, like, this tour is not designed for people beneath the age of 15. For me, the kind of even the, the verbiage of how I'm selling it and this tech and transmitter stuff tends to attract a a tech-friendly audience who tends to be, it's also self-selecting. Or if you get the grandma, which I do every once in a while, she's a super hip, I'm into radio transmitters type audience. And so I haven't had that big of a problem mixing. And then if, if someone, a young person loves my tour, they know their parents. And so they say, can I buy a, a private experience, non-audio for my parents? And so it, it's not been an issue for me on, on marketing. Do you have any venues on your bucket list do you dream of hacking the, the Vatican or, or, or audio hopping the Vatican or some other exotic locale? You want to go exotic? I did. <laughs> I'm from Seattle and I drove across the country on my move to New York to kind of explore way off of the beaten path art installations. There's art pieces in the middle of the desert in nowhere. Uh, Walter de Maria's Lightning Fields, which is like a I'm going to misquote now, 100 lightning rods in the middle of nowhere, so far away from a city that you don't get light pollution. And they just drop you off there for 24 hours and leave and then come back in 24 hours. It's just to be in this art space for 24 hours. Stuff like that. Oh, my <laughs> God. Just to do the craziest. Yeah, I have a few dreams like that. I hear a lot of people complain about the museum experience at the Louvre about it being an overwhelming, massively crowded, just terrible experience as a visitor and a viewer of art. And we love going into these massive museums and institutions and bringing in a guide staff that can show you like how to experience it. We also find the coolest, you know, what I'd call tier two museums that have incredible collections and yet um, lack like a specific sort of engaging way to connect with their local populations and tell those stories. And there's a few that I've been to and I'm just like, this place is incredible. And they're usually in the suburbs or in spaces where they can have ginormous square footage. And so it's just fantastic spaces. I love those. Um, something I'm curious about is whether there's going to be more of these kind of concepts popping up. Do you think that there's going to be more competition in the future in the form of these, let's say, renegade untours? I'll say definitely. Yeah, more, but my, my, the question is the word competition. Hmm. Are they taking from me? I've talked to other uh, gallery guides, you know, more traditional guides who are 
awesome in what they do, and we're, we're not competing with each other. I don't view that. It's we're competing with the Statue of Liberty. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, so I don't think someone is is really selecting. Do I want to do museum hack or or audio hop? It's it's they do both. It's it's exposed me to something else. Hmm. We'll see what happens in ten years. We've been plugged into these types of consumer trends. And have you guys seen what has happened with the Escape the Room games around the world? Oh, my God, that's fun. It's crazy, yeah. right? It's a fun game, yeah. and you've nailed it. If you haven't, you're listening, you haven't been on an Escape the Room game. Basically, they lock you into a room for one hour, and you're with a bunch of other people, and you have to figure out how to break out of the room, right? So there's clues hidden all around. You go through, there, there'll be a, a lock, and you have to pick the lock, and in the lock is a phone, and you call a secret number, and there's a message. It's an amazing experience, but it's one that easily is translatable, and repeatable through cities around the world. And so New York City, Bangkok, Thailand, Barcelona, Spain, these escape the rooms have sprung up by all these entrepreneurs that have created a network of escape the rooms. And there's no brand or anything, so they all do it independently. In many of these cities, it was the number one rated activity on TripAdvisor. And it kind of comes up as a theme or as a fad. So... I'm interested in those experiences, and I think that the escape the room phenomena is an amazing example of consumers wanting a very renegade, non-traditional tourist experience. Uh, Nick, you've mentioned TripAdvisor a couple of times, and they're getting much more involved in the tours and activities business. They bought Viator, a uh, big tour company. Uh, is this a good thing for you guys, or how does it impact you? Great question about TripAdvisor. I I feel like maybe tour operators fear TripAdvisor, like website people fear Google, that at sometimes we can be sort of in the palm of their hand at the mercy of their search algorithms and how they rank things. And I have massive respect for the business that TripAdvisor has created and, and the trust through the individuals who use that service all around the world. We made the decision over a year ago that said, look, we have to immediately diversify where we get customers come from. Because if we rely on TripAdvisor as the number one source, then they could just switch an algorithm and the next day we're not even listed. So I don't know, is their, their acquisition of Viator a good thing? Maybe for a small business operator, no, because it focuses on those businesses who have the infrastructure to work with somebody like Viator to say, you know what, like the mom and pop shops aren't going to fill out the legal type stuff. They're not going to have a buy now button. It's going to be a little old fashioned. And they, to some extent, get left in the dust, but I don't know, survive or thrive. I know, certainly as, as me, who's at kind of an earlier state than you, and I rely 100% on word of mouth. Uh, TripAdvisor is great for me because it's not necessarily attracting customers, but everyone will check TripAdvisor. Mm -hmm. They'll hear about me, check TripAdvisor. Just a little security thing. Mm -hmm. So I think it's still, even for the small mom and pops, it's important. You're not going to attract customers, but it's a stamp of, oh, this is something that people enjoy and support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and just kind of end it off on a note, I'm curious, what's your... Um, What's your vision for the art world when it comes to travel? How do you hope that the the two continue to work together to provide these better experiences? Do you think that you know every museum in the world should offer something like Museum Hack? Do you think that galleries should be accessible to to locals and to tourists? 
Do you have a kind of bigger vision when it comes to the, the intersection of the two? I think there's a, there's a stronger curiosity for physical experiences, whether in mm. art is, is just that. You mm. know what I'm talking about? It's mm-hmm. the pure visual go to a thing and, and be with it. And so I don't know about companies, but I think that my hope is that there'll be a, a growing desire to, to visit spaces that are a little bit off the beaten path and have a real, it's weird because I do digital stuff, a non-digital kind of experience with an object or a person. I completely agree. I like what you said about that. At Museum Hack, we think that museums are freaking awesome. And we're interested in attracting the type of audience who thinks they don't like museums. Usually they've had a bad experience. They've gotten bored or they think they don't like art or something like that. But for us, museums can be this place of inspiration and a sense of inquisitiveness about history. That's what it was for me. It unlocked a sense of curiosity that I never knew that I had. And my vision or what my goal would be is that more people can experience these places, whether they be galleries or museums, as a physical space to to go to and to see this art and to get inspired or to think about things. We think the future of entertainment is that live experience. And these museums can be spaces where adults can continue to learn and be inspired. Incredible. Well, thank you so much, Nick and David, for joining us today. Um, Audio Hop and Museum Hack are both great experiences in New York City. So any listeners who haven't tried them should definitely check them out. And uh, thank you for coming on the show today. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.